Hi, I'm Angela, and this is BYU After Me Too, where we talk about how sexual assault is impacting BYU students and policies. So far on this podcast, the conversations I've had have been with and about BYU students, but today we're going to expand that focus a little bit. We're going to put the issues we've talked about in context with the community that BYU is the center of, Provo, Utah. To do that, I'm talking with Kira Shea. Kira is an author who grew up in Provo and converted to the LDS Church in her youth. In her memoir, How the Light Gets In, she talks about the abuse she experienced as a child growing up in Provo. I wanted to hear about how her experiences with abuse in her childhood and teen years have affected her throughout her adult life. You can visit Kira's website at www.kirashade.net or purchase her book, How the Light Gets In, on Amazon. I've included links to both of those in the description of this episode. Here's Kira. Thank you so much for being willing to talk with me. I've been reading through your book and it is so heartbreaking and inspiring. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so what inspired you to, to write this memoir? I didn't really write it thinking, oh, I'm going to publish a book. I, I wrote it just because my experience was that I used to journal I used to write it was kind of like emotional vomit Mm -hmm. and so I went back to it when these things were continuing to haunt me um it was a way to kind of as my friend puts it exercise the demons yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and everybody has their way of doing that I mean some people run marathons some people paint and for me it was to write Mm -hmm. so I went ahead and I wrote things that were coming up in nightmares, things that I just went over. And once they were out on the page, um, they did feel like emotional vomiting. I actually felt like really vomiting. Oh. <laughs> um, and I couldn't look at them for a long time, but I realized that it stopped haunting me. So then it motivated me to um, write more and more and more and get it out because for some reason giving it a concrete shape with my words felt empowering and some of the some of the secrecy and the pain was lost in being able to just get it out and it not be um swimming around in me anymore right yeah and i'm sure you know give it a narrative Mm -hmm. give it meaning everybody wants to do that oh yeah definitely and I can only imagine how how difficult that work must have been of the emotional work of reliving those experiences and and making them concrete, because if they're concrete, that means they're real, that they really happened to you and that they're a part of you. Um, So, yeah, I I really. Exactly. It was like evidence, finally. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, And and so I I notice in the first few chapters of your book that you talk about um, confessing to your mom or confessing to your grandma that these things have happened to you, that you've been abused by, by different men who are in your, your mother's life at that point. Um, and it, it, the way you describe it, it seems like they responded with concern and maybe even with empathy, but not really with solutions. So how do you wish that your concerns that you brought up, even as a child as young as like four, 
would have been received by the adult caregivers in your life? Hmm. Yeah, I I think they were just products of their time and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, I mean, at the time they they didn't know how to use words to empathize. I don't I don't think children were seen as equals or anything. Um, I think they did the best they could, but of course. I don't know how many resources they had, mm-hmm. but today I, I think I would have, first of all, given them a vocabulary for what had happened yeah, and helped them choose how they wanted to frame their language around it, um, being very careful to give them a narrative in which later they might be able to feel empowered with, and then giving them an avenue to talk about it when they needed to and giving them resources. Mm-hmm. And because of my experience, I, I know a lot of vocabulary that I can give them. And um, <clears throat> I think that can make all the difference. Yeah. Just being able to express yourself when victims feel like they don't have a chance or a choice. Um, and then them being able to create their own story the way they want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think you do a great job of capturing how you felt in those different moments of of feeling powerless and of having um, having so much taken away from you. And there's one there's one part in particular. It's in chapter eight where you talk about um, you're you're kind of ex- you're witnessing your mom with a man and you're trying to explain how you're trying to understand how you feel in that moment. Um I'll just read a little a little passage. You say, I felt aroused, yet I was experiencing a full-blown panic attack at the same time. I had no idea why. Um, and I, I feel like that really captures the mixed emotions that child sexual abuse survivors experience. Um, so can you kind of describe, like, what that full range of emotion is for a child who's experienced sexual assault? Yeah, sure. Um, so for me... I had not had any sexual experience except for ones in which I was not empowered. I didn't have any control over the situation and I didn't know what consent was, nor did I give it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, sex only came in wrapped up in, in fear right. and not just like a little fear, like grave fear. I thought I would lose my home or my family. I thought I might die because the men who I've had ex- sexual experiences with were significantly older than me, mm-hmm. um, there was there was definitely a feeling like this person could kill me for sure. Like mm-hmm. um, as a child, just generally, adults feel more powerful than you in every possible way. They can outsmart you, and they can also outrun you and outmaneuver you. Mm-hmm. And so, for me sex only meant great fear yeah and um so it's strange that a very natural sexual response that would come up for the rest of my life with great frequency would be tied to fear Mm -hmm. always um so it's just strange that like pleasure would always be tied to fear and shame it's a strange experience for me to have and so then it, that colored the whole of my world. Whenever I saw my mother or heard my mother, I thought she was being harmed. Hmm. 
Um, When I would watch television and movies and pornography, I assumed that they were being harmed Mm -hmm. or at very least that they didn't want it. Yeah. And then as I grew older as a teenager, it made me deeply fearful when I realized that some people do want it. Hmm. And I felt ashamed when I wanted it because it was tied to harming other people, using other people. I I just could not comprehend a context in which someone would just experience arousal or have sex with another person and that other person was safe in the presence of that arousal and the person that was also aroused was safe in their presence. Like both people being safe was not, was not how I I thought of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought for sure, most likely the woman, but I thought for sure someone in that context was not wanting it and was fearful and was avoidant. And, um, it really made me feel ill, truly like my stomach, a sink full of hot water draining through the floor every time and this has been carried throughout most of my life like even just benign situations like a man who in college had run across campus to get to his classroom Mm -hmm. in time and was late sat down next to me sweating and panting and I have a full-blown panic attack because I can smell the man's sweat and I can hear him breathing Mm. and and this man I don't know him he's just a student but I feel complete and utter fear I'm taken back to that moment and I couldn't watch movies with any sex scenes in them for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was part of my exposure therapy eventually because anything to do with that, I couldn't trust it. I couldn't trust that people were enjoying themselves. I couldn't trust that sexual arousal was a safe experience. Mm-hmm. It, it just never clicked for me. Yeah, and, and of course it wouldn't because all of your experiences as a child were, were tied to fear. So it it completely mm-hmm. makes sense. And um I also noticed in in your book that God and religion are kind of entwined in your story throughout. So I'm I'm wondering how spirituality and specifically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints played a role in both your challenges and also in your healing. Oh, um, yeah, this is just my personal experience with it. Mm -hmm. There were some positive aspects of religion in there. Um, First of all, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but the church doesn't speak much on sexual topics, and there's a lot of regulation on sexual topics. Right. Now, this is great for someone who has had too much experience with sexual topics, and mm-hmm. all of them induce a great amount of fear, that this almost bleached Mormon environment of lack of talking about sex helped me interact with people on other topics and other interests besides sex, which Mm -hmm. was really great. It's nice to see that human beings are multifaceted, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It was great to see, especially men in roles that had nothing to do with sexuality. Um, I see them in leadership. I see them reading. I see them citing scripture. I see them uh, getting educations or... Um, I see them going and coming home from war. I see them going and coming from sports. Mm-hmm. It's just nice to see that human beings are are whole people and that they're not just 
their sexual components. So that was nice in a way to to experience a little bit of a haven. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Utah County, so schools and churches um, were filled with very similar types of people. So school felt a little bit like church did because most of the teachers were also LDS. Yeah, and yeah. And so it just, it, it was like um, a big contrast between my home life and school because in school they never talked about sex and they didn't show any videos about it. Um, it just wasn't a topic broached. And then at church, if it was broached, it was broached very rarely and it wasn't... Um, it wasn't really spoken of in any sort of like pleasurable way. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and and that can lend to some problems because of course then you, if you just say nothing then you don't have any positive, but at least it was mm-hmm. neutral, which is a good contrast to my my home life. Right. Um and then it was beginning probably with my generation that they started being more open in their in their talks, their discussions, and also in their actual literature, like their pamphlets about how if you experience rape or molestation, that you are innocent. Hmm. And, and no one, my, my mother didn't discuss almost anything with me, but she didn't, she didn't ever say or use the word innocence or, or that maybe I was still a virgin or that, you know, I was blameless or something like that. Like there just, there just wasn't any discussion on it. So that was a little relieving. Um, I wanted to believe that idea. Mm-hmm. I didn't fully because of course this, these experiences were so young that they made up entirely my sexual awakening. Yeah. Um, most people have a more innocent or playful or curiosity driven sexual awakening but mine was something that was considered a crime in society it was considered a sin in church and um, even if I was you know blameless in that the the effects of it the fact that I knew what sex was that I knew what kind of pleasure you could get from it and also the pain I knew the the language that surrounded sex and what people said to each other mm-hmm. um that made me not feel innocent at all. So yeah. <laughs> um, it was a little bit of a double-edged sword, but I did feel like I could come to church members um, about the abuse mm-hmm. specifically and feel like I was a bit absolved of any sort of blaming, but there wasn't a lot of discussion about how I could have positive sexuality or positive sexual experiences or that in the future I had a bright future as Mm. far as my marriage that I wanted to have and children I wanted to have and dating and things like that. There, there wasn't much talk about that, but I did date a lot of Mormon boys and that was a great safe haven too, because with my experiences, I wasn't ready to have any mature sexual experiences and the religion forbids having more advanced sexual experiences especially at that young age and so dating mormon boys was fun it was innocent it felt free because there was no pressure expectation that i was at some point supposed to give it up to anyone Mm -hmm. (laughs) quite the opposite i was expected to make sure that they didn't do anything that was outside of the realm of what religion prescribed for them so Mm -hmm. um that meant that there was there was just a lot of 
fun, innocent, flirting times to be had, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was, was uh, a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and since we're on the topic of dating, I, I want to talk about the time when you met your husband. Um, it's really interesting how you describe that moment. Um, you talk about him as being someone who remembers to put his napkin on his lap, and then you describe yourself as the product of someone who has been homeless, hungry, frequently weak and ill, and you kind of go on to describe all of these different things that you've been through. And then at the at the end of that paragraph, you say, um, I had nothing to offer but a heart in critical condition. So what helped you to kind of transition from, from that way of thinking to, to feeling like, oh, I really am deserving of love and I'm deserving of, of this man kind of a thing? Um. I I actually struggle a bit with this still to this day. I I definitely feel different than most of my Mormon counterparts, mm-hmm. including my husband. I I've always struggled with worthiness, not not in the way you think. I just feel like maybe I'm tainted and quite different yeah. than others because of my experiences and so I've had to kind of throw away the idea of worthiness because mm-hmm. um, it was it was just a black and white thinking neighbors which only made me less likely to love them and trust them and more likely to resent them and hate myself and so um, I don't think I ever did think yeah I'm worthy of my husband I still don't think that today I wake up every day and just hope to do a good job (laughs) you know I do my very best um Mm -hmm. but uh I know that he is also doing his very best and and it's been much more helpful for me to see him as a human and me as a human and for us to make our mistakes and also to be made up of uh to be a conglomerate of all of the things that we've experienced and had and and our unique perspectives that sometimes don't always match up mm-hmm. it's been a lot better for me and yes i do feel like uh, that's the reason i named my book how the light gets and i do feel like my heart and my soul are very very broken and they are in critical condition, but it's in that brokenness and in that softness that it leaves me open and mm-hmm. willing, and uh, it leaves me at the mercy of truth and love and striving. Yeah. Um, and it it's not always a pleasant experience, but you know I have learned to love my neighbor, and I'm trying to learn to love myself in that <laughs> equation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Those are all the questions that I had. Is there anything about your experiences or your book or anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I I would like to say something. I have recently worked with very closely with some children who have been abused sexually and, um, and I didn't do it going in, you know, let's say to the Children's Justice Center here in Provo that I usually fundraise for, they were people that unexpectedly I knew who ended up being abused. Hmm. And they were people I loved very much. And I thought with my advocacy and my hard work and with the, with the things that I knew and experienced with all that wisdom that somehow I would be able to protect 
people that I loved and knew from that life that I experienced, it was one of the things that gave me a lot of purpose. Like, okay, well, it happened to me and I moved from a place of it's, it happened to me to, I'm not ever going to let that happen again to anybody else. And it was a great state of like action and, and, and power and movement. But the problem is, is that, uh, none of us have full control. You know, we think we do, we think we have a lot of power and maybe we do, but I think it was a great reminder to me that I'm not in the driver's seat as much as I think and would love to think that I am. Mm. And so these things do, can and do still happen. And I've seen them personally. So I've seen them for myself and I've also, which has been a much more difficult role, I've seen them happen to people that I love very much. And it broke my heart to think that I didn't have the power to stop it. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time blaming myself and hating myself and berating myself and others for letting it happen again with a new generation of people after all that we had learned from previous generations, including mine. But the reality is, is that we aren't in control and all we can do is just try to be there for each other as best we can um, to, you know, mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And that includes the fact that I had to work with the perpetrator and not just the victim. I had to work with the abuser, the abused. And that was an eye-opening experience for me Mm -hmm. to realize that we are all in need of love and things won't be solved if we keep being at war with each other, if we don't try to develop a a Christ-like and brotherly love toward each other. Now, I'm not saying this to someone who has just been raped you know I'm not this is a journey for me and this is where my journey has taken me I needed to feel like a victim and I needed to be angry and I needed to be sad Mm -hmm. in order to get myself into a safer situation and then evolve and heal to the point that I can now go back into war as a veteran and start doing the work from the other side Mm -hmm as as an experienced person and some people may never get to that point i'm not blaming anyone for being whatever stage they are in the in the cycles mm-hmm. but i just want to say that um since my book came out more men than women have come to me admitting that they had been abused too oh wow and they can't speak up they feel like they can't for whatever reason they all had different reasons for Mm -hmm. why they couldn't but it's surprising to me that when my book comes out I get you know victims of all kinds coming to me wanting to tell me their stories and I'm shocked at how many of them are men I'm also shocked at what makes an abuser do what they're doing or not realize what they're doing Mm -hmm. and so as you would see when you read my book I come to a point, it begins with my mother and it ends with my mother. Um, this person, this other, this person that I hated and that I loved, that I worshipped and I wanted to destroy. And coming to a point and realizing that she is human and I'm human and, and loving those people. Because, not because uh, 
I'm better, not because I expect a certain outcome, not because they deserve it or they're worthy of it, mostly just because it is a result of being humbled, I suppose, and we're just not going to get any better as a society if we don't try. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it than that. If we don't strive, if we cease to strive with humanity, we're done for. So I suppose that's the last thing that I would like to say in conclusion is that we are instructed to love our neighbor. And that meant for me to love my prostitute, meth addicted, uneducated mother. It also meant to love abusers and mm-hmm. child molesters. It also meant to love the children who were abused. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, the most difficult journey, um, to love myself. That That is also included in loving your neighbor. So yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for everything you've shared. That was such a, a beautiful way to describe um, how really that that pure love can come from a healing journey and I just wish you all the best I'm I'm so glad that your story is out there for people to read and um, and that you've been getting so much so much feedback from it from from like you said survivors of of all genders and and all walks of life and things like that so yeah thank you so much for joining me I've really appreciated talking with you yeah it was great thank you thanks Thanks for joining us today. Again, you can find Kira's website at www.kirashay.net or purchase her book How the Light Gets In on Amazon. Next time, we'll hear from two former BYU students who also experienced abuse as children. Special thanks to Abner Apsley for the music. This is BYU After Me Too. I'm Angela.